Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. Once again, welcome to Four Corners Church. Glad you took out time on this July Sunday morning to be with us. Uh, that video makes me hungry. How about you guys? Yeah, yeah. When we're done here, you can go grab some lunch or some brunch, whatever you want to call it. Hey, I want to start right away. So if you have your Bible and you want to go with me, uh, not on the screen, not in your message notes, I'm going to take you to the story, and then we'll turn to our notes. But Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. All right, let's go there. If you have your Bible on your phone, whatever, uh, the, you can take a few notes on your message notes when we get to it. If you didn't have a Bible with you, you can go back and check, make sure I'm not lying to you about what the Scripture says. But I want to tell you the story of uh, a guy who's very famous in the Bible. His name is Isaiah. Isaiah. In fact, we have a, a, a young boy in the room who's named Isaiah, don't we? He's sitting. Is he with you? Is he with you? No, he, oh, he's in the nursery? There you go. He's in the nursery. All right. All right. Isaiah, what a wonderful name. What a wonderful name. It's a very powerful name in the Bible, in, in, your, in your Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet. And uh, Isaiah chapters 1 through 6 are, are an interesting story that I, I thought maybe you'd want to know. Isaiah was the son of a prophet. So this is in his blood. A prophet is a person who speaks the words of God powerfully. Sometimes they can predict the future, but generally, no, that's about 20% of the time. Generally speaking, they just speak the word of God with boldness and accuracy, and they bring clarity to an issue. That's generally the role of a prophet. And Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, before we get to 6, Isaiah is going strong in his ministry. He's doing the things that prophets do. He's predicting woe on a handful of people because they're not doing right. He's predicting and pronouncing blessing on others because they're doing right, and he has he has the ear of the king, a very special king, by the way, a king by the name of Uzziah. Uzziah. So there's Isaiah and Uzziah. Uzziah is the king, and of all the kings in the history of Israel, Uzziah is probably rated like number three from the top at being the best. Uh, he becomes king when he's 16 years old. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? You imagine a president of the United States being 16 years old. When I was 16, I was nowhere near ready to lead myself, let alone a country. But Isaiah becomes king at 16 years, or Uzziah becomes king at 16 years old. And when he becomes king, Israel goes into a time of blessing and favor. Things go really, really well under Uzziah. Really well. And as he grows, he, he leads for 50 Two years. This is a long reign. Average king in the Old Testament time leading about 10 to 12 years. He leads 52 years, and it's a great season in Israel's history. A couple of things Uzziah does. He's really into agriculture, so he teaches people how to make their land produce more crops. People are happy with him. Somehow the Lord has given him favor and knowledge. Not only does that, but in their fortified cities, Isaiah, Uzziah has designed a weapon that can be put up on top of a tower that it, that it would hurl large stones, heavy objects onto anybody that would want to invade the city through the walls. And so Uzziah has agricultural insight. He has military insight. He's financially prosperous, and under him, the entire country is prosperous. This is a good time, and this is the place in which Isaiah rises up to be a prophet. It's a good day to be alive in Israel. Military might, financial blessing, everybody's eating well. This is a big deal. So Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 tells a lot of that story. It's great stuff. If you read it, it reads like prophecy, and you kind of have to back up and get the narrative behind it. But in Isaiah chapter 6, something happens that sets us up for our conversation today. 
And while the time and space are very different, the, the circumstance is very different than perhaps what you're in today, I bet a lot of people in the room will be able to relate to the emotion and to the reality that Isaiah the prophet is going to have to deal with in light of what happens at the beginning of chapter 6. One of the things that if you live long enough, these kinds of things, they're, they're going to happen to you. You might be through them right now. If they don't happen to you, they're going to happen to people you love, and you are vicariously going to watch them go through stuff, and it's going to impact you. It's going to have an impact on you. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt or an uncle, you're going to watch your kids go through stuff. And it's going to be very similar, very different, but very similar to what Isaiah is going through. It won't be under the reign of King Uzziah, and it won't necessarily be all about financial prosperity or agricultural well-being or military protection. It won't be about those things. But something well will be going on in life. Things will be looking pretty good, and then all of a sudden there'll be an event that changes the tone quickly. Isaiah chapter 6 uh, I normally carry a leather-bound Bible with me, but um, I got old in the last month or so, and I can't see, so I had to get one with bigger text. So Isaiah, in case you're wondering, I don't typically carry a hardbound Bible with me, but uh, anyway, here we go. Isaiah chapter 6, here's what the Bible says, all right? In the year that, here's our phrase, King Uzziah died. That's what happened. Everything's going great. It's, it's good life. But in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's already been going for five chapters. In Isaiah chapter 6, we get the event that's going to change everything. In the year that King Uzziah died, the prosperity, the protection, the comfort, the ease, the good position that Isaiah had with the current king, the favor he had there, the general well-being of everybody's life, and it changes in a moment because the ruler died. Now, again, it, your, your situation probably doesn't change all that drastically when, a, when we tra transfer from one president to another. I mean, I, I know we make a big deal about it, but the truth is, is there are a handful of changes that happen. Elections do have consequences. I've heard that phrase. But, but you're, you're not perhaps experiencing what I'm talking about because of a change of leadership. But I bet... You know what it is to have things be going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, circumstance change. Circumstances change. And now what felt pretty good, what felt pretty awesome, what felt pretty okay, now there are questions, there's uncertainties, there is a shifting reality, and you don't really know what's going to look like in the next week, month, two years, ten years. Several years ago, about 2008, our country went through a season of financial downturn, we called it. We were marching on Wall Street and all kinds of stuff, and almost it seemed overnight, people's realities shifted. Circumstances changed, and what at the front end of 2008 seemed like a pretty good run, and everybody, a lot of people at least, doing pretty well, instantly it felt there was a dramatic shift. For Isaiah, it happened when Uzziah died. But if you've been serving the Lord for any length of time, I, I hope you have. Um, our, our church, by the way, just a little information for you who might be curious about this. 
Our, our church is a unique church. All churches are unique. They have unique personalities. That's fine. But one of the things I didn't expect when we started this church almost 15 years ago is that the Lord would send us a lot of people who didn't really have much of an active church background as an adult. Some of them had church background as a kid, but as an adult, they weren't that engaged. Even if they went, they weren't that engaged. I, I didn't anticipate that. So, so you may not know intuitively that if you follow Jesus long enough, what's going to happen is, is you're going to discover some things about him and about life with him. Not only when things are going good and you feel awesome, I, I hope that's happening to you, but if you follow Jesus long enough, you're going to discover some profound things about the Lord, about life with him, some profound things about yourself when things don't go so well. When you actually get tested through the fire, as it's said. When the security is stripped away, when the circumstance shifts, when Uzziah dies. You learn a lot about Jesus. You learn a lot about life with Jesus. You learn a lot about you in those circumstances. And it can be troubling but in this brief little story of Isaiah, I want to show you something that speaks tangibly and powerfully to our topic today. I want to talk with you today about peace. Peace. I, there's a lot of ways we could define that term. It's a powerful term in your Old Testament. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It literally means to be at rest, to be content, to be whole with Right? Not a piece of you, but all of you is content. It's aligned. So we talk about peace with God, aligned with him, no gap. We talk about peace with others, right? That is to not have a breakdown in the relationship. The, the lines of communication go pretty well. We, we talk about peace within yourself, that, that you are content within you and who you are and the way God's wired you and your position and place and your destiny in life. The word is broad term, peace. But you may not have thought about it for a while, but one of the fruit, one of the outcomes of the work of God in your life, if you're a child of God today, if you're a believer, one of the works of the Spirit in your life is to produce in you shalom, to produce in you a peace, a contentment, and a wholeness. This is the lesson Isaiah is about to go on. And I, I want to show you, as we read just a couple more verses in Isaiah 6, I want to show you the overarching theme, and then we'll drill down in your message notes a couple of practical things you can do. Not to force this. You don't force the work of the Spirit. God's not a cosmic Coke machine that if you put in the right amount of coins and press the right button, you get out what you want. That's not the way life with the Spirit works. Right? That's manipulation. That's demanding from God. No, no, no. While you cannot control God, you can't control the Spirit. <laughs> I mean, you do know, I joke about this all the time, that the two most basic rules in the universe are there is a God and you're not Him, right? You know that, right? Yeah, okay. So, while you can't control the Lord, you can participate with God in the work He's doing with you. So I want to show you the story and, and then I want to show you some practical ways to participate with God. It doesn't force his hand. It doesn't give you everything you think you want in the moment. But it aligns you. It brings you at peace with him so that his work, the fruit of his work, can manifest in your life. 
So the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5 tells us, is love. Joseph, Pastor Joseph talked about that. I spoke with you about joy last week. And it's peace. Peace. This shalom, this alignment. Here's how it happened for Isaiah. Again, time and space and circumstance will be different. But there's so much in this for those of us today who have either gone through a season like this to understand it as we look back. If you're going through it, there's a lot of hope here for you today. And if you aren't going through it, hold on, you probably will or somebody close to you will. And when you do, this is a passage you can go to. So you listen today, not just for yourself. You listen today because if you're a believer, God's going to put you up close to somebody who's going through some stuff. Now, you do know that listening to a sermon just for yourself is about the most selfish and kindergarten level spirituality there is. Now, if you need it, grab it because it'd be really stupid not to. But you listen and engage the word of God, even when it doesn't seem applicable to where you are, because God is going to use that in your life as a tool in your tool belt so that as you're going about life, interacting with people, loving people, you're going to have an opportunity to share with them truth from God's word. One of the reasons God wants you to grow up and be a mature disciple is not just so you get all the benefit, but so that you can help others in the family of God, your brothers and sisters, move forward. So Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, look at this next phrase. I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Now, his potentate has just died. There was a throne for Uzziah. But in the moment, in the year, sometime shortly after Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. The word there in Hebrew is Adonai. It means the Lord. I mean, it's translated very well, but sometimes those words don't carry the same weight. Specifically, this word for the Lord makes the original Hebrew readers think of one word that I think is a really good word to bring meaning to this word. It's the word sovereign. He is the sovereign one, the one in charge, the one in control, the one who knows things. The one when everything else is falling apart, he's got it together. The one who's not surprised by any event that happens. The one who can bring good out of even the worst circumstance. In the year that Uzziah, the potentate that gave me all kinds of privilege and prestige, when Uzziah died, and that time shortly after the year, I saw the Lord, the Adonai, the sovereign, look at what it says about him, high and lifted up, high and exalted, and the train above his robe filled the temple. Now, in those days, you measured a king's wealth by a lot of different ways. And one of the ways you measured a king's regalness and wealth and authority was by the robe he wore. Was it sable? Was it mink? How long was it? How big was it? And if you, if you could have a robe that required five page hands to carry it, you were a big king. You were a big king if you had to walk down the aisle and a bunch of people had to carry your robe. You can, you can watch some Netflix shows that talk about the UK and what goes on in London with kings and all. Some of you guys are really into that. And you know, when they're doing the coronation ceremony and they're walking down, if you had a big robe, you were a big deal. Uzziah probably had a big robe. 52 years of service. Incredible prosperity. People came from all over to watch Uzziah do his thing. Isaiah gets to serve in the court of the king. But when he died, Isaiah got a bigger picture of a greater potentate. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train from his robe filled the temple. It was ample. It spilled over the pedestal of the throne, down into the place where people hung out. Then look at what the Bible says. Above him, there were seraphs, or seraphim in the Hebrew. Seraphs, there was a type of angel. Look at these angels with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Now, whenever God makes a creature, he makes the creature appropriate for the environment in which he puts them. So on fish, there are scales and gills because they're going to live in the water. Birds have hollow bones because they're going to fly through the air and they need a lighter skeletal structure to facilitate that along with their wings and muscular system. That's all the biology I know, and it took me eight minutes to pull that stuff off the internet. All right, so when it comes to angels, they have wings. But seraphim, who are part of the choir of God, they have six wings. Because their environment specifically is to stand in the presence of God and worship him. So Isaiah, at a time of turbulence and change, when shalom is elusive, gets a picture of God, regal, in control, sovereign, and surrounded by angelic beings, special ones. Not just messenger with wings that can travel back and forth, but these seraphs, these seraphim are above the throne of God. So they're hovering with two wings above his throne. And they've got four other wings, two to cover their face, Because, and here's why, God's glory, the glory of the king is so great that they can't afford to look at him, it would destroy them. This is the image of God we get in the Bible. When when Moses says to God, I want to see you, this is in your Bible in Exodus, God says, "I, I can't let you see me, it would kill you. But I will let you see the train, the the." The, the robe. I'll let you see the trail of my robe as I pass by. And it so affected Moses. It's a cool story. That when he comes down off the mountain, the people of Israel that Moses is leading, they say to Moses, you're scaring us to death because your face is literally glowing. He got just a glimpse of God's train and it impacted him so much. So the seraphim can't even look at God. And they got to cover their feet because the Bible tells us that creatures are made of clay, if you will. That's a metaphor for describing that we're not permanent, we're not eternal, we're not as regal, we're not as divine. And so they have to cover their feet, they have to cover their face, and they fly. But it's not the anatomy of the angels that give us a picture of what's special here that I think will give us insight into how to grab hold of and maintain shalom, even when circumstances change. It's not their anatomy. It's their message. The message of the angels that Isaiah sees. In your Bible again, Isaiah chapter 6. You can verify this when you get home. With two wings they cover their faces. With two wings they cover their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. The Hebrew word there is very fairly translated calling. But it might also mean they were calling back and forth to one another. If you grew up in certain religious traditions, you had what was called antiphonal worship where one person, a cantor, would say a phrase and the choir would repeat it back. That's what they were doing. 
They were communicating back and forth, and here was their message. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, and I love this word. It's one of my favorite words in all the Bible. The whole world is full of his glory. I don't know what glory means. It's a complicated word. It minimally means the whole world is full of his light, his brightness. The glory of the Lord shone on the face of Moses when he came down from the mountain. It was this glowing thing. The light of God fills the whole earth. In the middle of changing circumstance and hard to grab hold of shalom for Isaiah, the Lord gives him a picture of himself, the great and royal and sovereign potentate sitting on a throne whose robe is longer and more elaborate than anybody else's, who has angelic beings whose entire job is to stand around him declaring his nature, his holy, holy, holy. They call that in theology the, the thrice hagias. In, in the Hebrew language, if you wanted to declare something at the highest value, the way you did it was you repeated words. So he's not just holy. That would be impressive. That would mean he was complete. He was other than. He was special. He was set apart. He's very different than us. Completely clean. No shadows in him. That's how the Bible describes our king. He is the father of lights in whom there is no shadow or turning. He's holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy. And he's not just holy, holy, but back and forth the choir would sing all day long, holy, holy, holy. And then they would answer, holy, holy, holy. And by the way, this never stops. Because in Revelation, if you turn to the end of your Bible, you discover John the Apostle looking upon the throne of God, and it looks very similar. And the angels are declaring the same song. They've sung it all the way through 750 years before Jesus. Right here in our passage, we're 750 years before Jesus, all the way through the time of Jesus. And whenever the Lord comes back, they're still going to be singing the song because it will never change. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's special. He's holy. He's different than this broken world. He's completely whole, put together, no shadow, only light. And this impacts Isaiah deeply. And he needed a touch from God because his circumstances were upside down. I mean, it's one thing to be a prophet in the court of the king when things are going well. But the pressure ratchets up. When there's change, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? How do I get the favor of God on me? This is the role of the prophet to the king. He's a, he's a spiritual advisor. And Isaiah had a special touch from God that his words were accurate. But now everything is upside down. So he goes to God. And let, me, let, me, let me just be clear here. What God does not do is say to Isaiah, Isaiah, don't worry about it. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the same kind of favor. Isaiah, don't worry about your circumstance. I'm going to make it better. Isaiah, say these prayers, do these actions, and then 
I'll bless you. He doesn't say that. In the middle of his circumstance, that shifts. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah gets something that's going to change him forever. And if you read the book of Isaiah from start to finish, there's a dramatic shift from 1 through 5, pre-death of Uzziah, and then from 6 forward. By the way, most of the quoting of the book of Isaiah done today, after chapter 6. After chapter 6, something powerful has happened to Isaiah, and his words aren't just powerful for the time and space in which he lived. His words carry with them a heavier weight and more significance because of what happens to him in chapter 6. His circumstances change, but God gives him a picture of God. He doesn't just hold out hope that it will shift. He gives him a picture of himself. And then look at what the Bible says in verse 4. And at the sound of the seraphim's voice, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Uh, this is why we have a fog machine, because as we hit the button, the Holy Spirit rolls into the room. <laughs> of course not. That has nothing to do with it. The light machine makes the lights look better, the fog machine. So that's all that's going on there. All right, I just say that because I've actually heard people say, what do you think happens? So, no, of course not. All right, so the whole temple is not, so here, inanimate objects like foundations and doorposts, they have the good sense that at the presence of God to respond, the shake, something powerful and is happening, something dramatic is shifting. Isaiah is getting a clearer picture of God, and it's going to change everything. And then look at his words. These words perplex me. Verse 5. Woe to me. Woe to me. I cried. This is Isaiah talking now. So he sees God and he says, woe. Prophets had two favorite words. Blessed and woe. Blessed and woe. Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's given the Beatitudes. He says, basically, if you do the God stuff, blessed are you. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then their second favorite word is woe, which is like, it's about to get bad for you. So when Isaiah sees a beautiful picture of God, here's his first response. Whoa. Not like in the cool woe, like whoa. No, no, this is like, oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. If that's who you are, I'm in trouble. If that's who you really are, I'm in trouble. I can't stand up to this. And then you know what he says? Woe is me. Now, his whole job is speaking, right? He's a prophet. He tells forth with boldness the words of God. And then he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I got a dirty mouth. Now, I don't know if he's talking about his words are perverse or uncouth or ill-timed, or if he just means that in general, he, here he is a voice for God, an oracle, and yet when he actually sees the God that he's speaking for, he's like, man, there's such a gap between me and you. And his first response is, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. By the way, I believe not only did Isaiah get a picture of God on this day, but Isaiah got a picture of himself, the clearest picture of himself he would ever have. This is what happens when Christians 
follow the Lord, the sovereign one. They get to see him more. That changes things. We're going to talk about that. But not only do you get to see God more, you get to see yourself more. This is not always a pleasant experience. This is what happens when you sit in a worship service and you sing songs and you realize, I came in with the weight of the world upon me. And now I'm talking about my God and how great he is. And I can't believe how I let that stuff get to me in light of how great God is. I remember as a young man sitting in auditoriums where a speaker on the stage who had some lifelong legacy of integrity spoke with boldness the words of God. I remember sitting in my seat feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit that here I am saying I'm called and I'm not taking it seriously. I got a picture of who I was. It wasn't always pleasant. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. My whole job is to speak and my lips aren't even qualified to do it. It's not a bad perspective on occasion for Christians to be reminded that it is not your righteousness, it's not your effectiveness, it's not your giftedness, it's not your grandeur, it's not your generosity that makes God love you. Because compared to God, you got nothing to offer. One, one biblical writer said, the best gift I can give God is dirty rags. That's all I got. This is what Isaiah is wrestling with. So let's just track his process at this point. His circumstances have changed. They're not pleasant. They don't look to be good. His whole security has now died as Isaiah died or as Uzziah died. And now he's getting a picture of himself that doesn't make him feel all warm and fuzzy. By the way, I'm not critical of other churches. I, I think we have a lot of people on the team. Some people on the team don't play the way I like to play, but they're still on the team. I don't criticize other churches. But as a pastor, I get worried when every message is all about making you feel good about who you are and what you are and what you do. But that doesn't seem to have the power that the Bible seems to portray is present when we come to God and not we feel great about us, but on occasion, not every day, right? But on occasion, he crushes our self-perception and makes us cry out in your own term with your own personality, whoa, God, I am not you and I fall short. It's really hard, by the way, for Jesus' words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's really hard to get the kingdom of God if you don't repent. And repentance requires a certain self-awareness that says, I need to change. I need to change. Part of the work of the fruit of the Spirit in your life is things like love, joy, and now peace come to you in part when you see God for who he really is and... <laughs> You see you for who you really are. Now, you're wonderful. You're made in the image of God. You have divine destiny upon you. You have purpose. All that is true, but you will never walk in that reality until you submit yourself to the great and awesome and sovereign and powerful God. And you don't get to come to him because you're his equal, because you're kind and nice. Because you're better than someone else. You only get to come to him because he makes it possible. 
So here's what happens to Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then look what happens. This is the gospel in Old Testament form. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then, then one of the seraphs, one of the angels, flew to me with a live coal. So he took something out of the fire. It's a, it's a burning ember in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. So the altar in those days were always burning. And with it, look at what he did. He touched my mouth, and he said... Can you imagine that for a second? It's imagery, right? So he touches him with a burning coal out of a fire. Right at the point of his brokenness, at his uncleanness, he sears his lips, and the flesh burns, and it swells, and it blisters. Why in the world would God instruct his angels to do that? Why would he allow that? Because part of the work of the Spirit in your life is to cut away, to burn away those things that keep the image of God in you that makes you so special from ever seeing the light of day. The work of the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit is to both convict, there's not enough conviction, and also to convince to convict the world of sin and convince the world the only hope they have is found in the grace of God. In the New Testament world, we know that that's offered through the person of Jesus. And Isaiah gets a glimpse of it here. And the coal is taken from the altar and it touches his lips. And then look at what the seraph says. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. In the middle of a changing circumstance, in the middle of a not-so-pleasant picture of himself, God brings to Isaiah a truth and a love in the moment. And he touches Isaiah's life, touches his heart, touches him at the point of his brokenness and his, and his, his, his sin, and declares over him, you are no longer guilty. I'll use you. I'll do something powerful in you. Circumstances are shifting, but I'm, remember, I'm Adonai. I'm sovereign. I'm in charge. I got this. Oh, and you finally see yourself for how you really are, not as awesome as you'd like everybody to believe? Okay. I still got it. My grace is sufficient here. Let me do my work in you. Now, you could read the rest of the passage. It's pretty powerful. I just want to take you to one place where it goes directly to our topic. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4, I believe it is. Let me look at my notes to verify. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is the change in Isaiah's perspective and the power of his words now are going to be like they were never before this moment. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read it at Christmas time. Isaiah is prophesying about the future. He's declaring the word of God with power. And he's saying, let me tell you what the future is going to be like. And that future is going to be so awesome. You can have peace now because God's going to send somebody like himself, a king like no world has ever seen. And that king is going to sit on a throne and his kingdom's never going to end. 
I wonder if when he spoke those words, as God inspired him, he remembered the king who had a 52-year reign. That was incredible. But this king that's coming, he's going to have a kingdom that never ends. So in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, one of my favorite passages that I memorized as a kid. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then here's our phrase, Prince of Peace. Sar Shalom, Prince Sar. No, not the Disney prince, <laughs> who's just charming. No, no. But the, the prince who has authority. The Sar Shalom. Authority. Not just cute, handsome, can dance a bit, knows what to say. No, he speaks with authority. The Lord of peace. Masar Shalom. We know that because of the New Testament that he's referring specifically to Jesus. When Jesus came to this world, one of the things he would do is he would bring Shalom to the world. He would start by establishing a family and he would bless, there's the word, he would bless that family. He would bless the whole world through that family. He started with Abraham, but then come New Testament, he grafted in a whole bunch of adopted sons or daughters. That's the church, the adopted ones. And he's going to bring shalom to that family. Peace with God, peace with each other, peace with yourself, peace with your call and purpose in this world. And the authority he's going to have to do that is, is he's not just a nice guy. He is literally the Lord of peace. So there's no surprise then that when the spirit of the Lord is at work, one of the fruit that will happen in the life of a believer is peace. Peace. And this is problematic for me as a pastor to preach a passage like this because the truth is, is far too often I don't have peace like the Bible says it's mine to have. Now, I've grabbed hold of it on occasion, sometimes surprised myself how amazing I have been able to have peace in the middle of circumstances. Like, God, you're so good to allow me to do this, to, to empower me to... And then there are other times when it seems like it shouldn't be any big deal at all and peace is elusive. Let's talk about peace for a few minutes and bring our time to conclusion. So peace comes on your screen up here. Peace comes as you retain, uh, sorry, as you retrain your mind to process life as Jesus, the Prince of Peace, declares it is rather than as you or others think it should be. Peace comes when not you like everything about you, not when you like all of your circumstance, but you retrain your mind to remember God is in control, He's sovereign. And angels, who are bigger and better and more awesome than me, they declare his holiness, his completeness, his sovereignty. And so the world, as God says it should be, is the path for peace, not what I think it should be. And you begin to let go of some stuff that's in your heart and in your head, and you grab hold of what God has for you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for Christ himself is our peace. So for the believer, there is no peace apart from the Sar Shalom, the Lord of peace. can have it. You cannot 
find peace by rearranging your circumstances, but by relying on who God has made you to be at the deepest levels, one who is submitted to his grandeur and glory, one who declares him to be sovereign, which means he's in charge and you're not. So I'm going to give you three steps here to participate with this. Number one, get under the lordship of Jesus. I'm talking to believers. By the way, but if you're not a believer, if you're not yet a Christian and you're here today, welcome. Welcome. We designed this church in part with you in mind. And we hope that you would feel welcomed here. But ultimately, we hope that this would be a wonderful place with loving people where you can encounter the most disturbing message you've ever heard. Like Isaiah, that you would discover in this place that you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. That's true for me. Everybody in this room who declares themselves to be a Christian, they, they know intuitively, they know experientially, they know intellectually and emotionally. They can't save themselves. So they relied on a Savior who was bigger and more awesome and more powerful. And only by the grace of that Lord were they able to declare themselves to be a part of the family of God, to be adopted into that. So Paul writes to the church here and he says, let me, let me, let me, let me tell you something. Only through Christ is there peace. So in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, Luke, the doctor, theologian, writes this as he writes the story of the church. He says, as he's quoting, you know the message God has sent the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. It's the lordship of Jesus. It's that sovereign thing. It's when you know that God is on his throne that you can be at rest, that you can sleep because he's not asleep. In fact, the interesting story in the New Testament is at one point the disciples are on our boat and their circumstance is rough. <laughs> and Jesus is so full of shalom that while everybody else, seasoned fishermen, know they're going to drown, boat's going to go down, the Bible says Jesus is asleep on a pillow. <laughs> he's not just asleep, he got comfortable. He, he, he made effort, he did this on purpose. He went to sleep. So whether you believe Jesus is asleep or you accept that he's awake and always in charge, if you're with him, you're fine. This is the whole point of the book of Revelation, by the way. The point is not to know when and what. It's to know who. And if you know who, it don't matter the when and what. You're fine. You're fine. It's okay. Now, you can debate and argue the when and what. That's awesome. Do it. It's fine. You're wrong. But you can do it, all right? Everybody's wrong because we don't know fully, right? You may be partly right. The key here is the lordship of Jesus. Again, Isaiah chapter 32. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places and secure homes in undisturbed disturbed places of rest. So what happens? And I want to give you a word to write next to number one. The word is Obedience. This is not a fun word, is it? Wasn't fun when you were a teenager. It's not fun when you were an adult. It's not fun when I'm in a hurry. When I'm in a hurry, I'm not obedient to the law of speed limit. I'm a good driver at high speeds. My wife disagrees, but I think I'm pretty good at it. So I drive fast. But you know what I'm doing the whole time I'm in a hurry? And I'm driving fast. I'm going 5, 10, 50 miles over the speed limit. You know what I'm doing? Every bridge I'm about to go under, you know what I'm doing? I'm looking. Is he there? I'll even tell my kids, this is horrible parenting. Look out for the popo. 
You got better eyes than I do. You can see better. I go over a hill, I slow down. When I know they're not there, I pick up speed. I'm not driving in peace. I'm driving in disobedience. And the truth is, for a lot of believers, the reason why the Spirit of God is ineffective in bringing peace to your life because you're walking in disobedience. There's active sin in your life, and there is no peace when there's active sin. Now, sometimes sin is out of ignorance. That is, you don't fully understand I'm not talking about that. That's for a different message. We can talk about that later. I'm talking about willing disobedience. You know, but you don't do. You know to do, and you don't do. Or you know not to do, and you do anyway. The good news is is there's grace for that. You'll probably still go to heaven. But you're not going to have the fruit of the spirit of peace in your life if you're walking in active disobedience to the commands of God given to his children. Parents. I do this with my kids. Dad, can we go out? Yes. What time are we going to be home? 11. You know what I'm doing with 11 o'clock? You know what I'm doing with that? I want to see if they'll obey. Now, if they show up at 1045, guess what happens the next time they ask? It's midnight. You show up at 11 o'clock in one second, you probably don't go out next week. Right? No. That's me. I'm an imperfect father. But your heavenly father, he will test you with obedience. And here's the test, not whether you obey or not, is if you believe that his plan for you and his rules for you are actually good for you. Because if you do, you will follow his rules. And if you don't, you believe he's withholding from you. That's why people date people they shouldn't date, sleep with people they shouldn't sleep with, don't do with money what God calls them to do, don't have integrity and This is why. They don't believe at the end of the day God's plans are actually better. They walk in disobedience, and as a result, they don't experience the fruit of the Spirit of peace. Number two, bring Jesus into every situation. By the way, he's already there. I'm talking about your conscious awareness of him. Two Thessalonians, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, and in every way the Lord be with you. The secret there is if the Lord is with you, you walk with that reality, peace is easier to obtain. The word here for us, under lordship, is obedience, but under bring Jesus into every situation is contentment. Contentment. Contentment happens when you have Jesus, because when you have Jesus, you have everything. And we, didn't we just sing the song, if more of you means less of me, take it all? All? Do you really want him to take the all so you can have all of him? The good news is he's probably not going to ask for it all, but he's going to ask for a lot. Because see, becoming a Christian doesn't cost you anything, but following Jesus is going to cost you a lot. Becoming a Christian is grace. It's free. But the fruit of the Spirit born in your life, love, joy, peace, it's going to cost you. Discipleship will cost you. That's why Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. Number three, keep your mind on Jesus. Again, Isaiah, got to keep going back to him. Chapter 26. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Keeping your mind on Jesus is all about trusting him. It's getting a bigger picture of who he is. You're sovereign. You're in control. You're you're trained. It fills the temple. Your robe is massive. The angels declared over holy, holy, holy. So, you want peace in your life? I'll be honest with you. Get more Jesus. Where you don't have peace in your life, it's simple, but it's kind of true. 
you probably don't have Jesus fully manifested in that place. I'm not saying you got to love your circumstance, but I'm telling you how to have peace, get a bigger picture of God. When I worry, the answer is always the same. Get a picture of God, get up and walk in obedience. When I'm worried about this over here, get a bigger picture of God and walk in obedience and trust that he'll have my back and take care of me. This is what, by the way, the children of Israel said to the king of Babylon. O king, live forever, because that's how you address the king. But we're not going to bow down to you. We're going to serve our God. And if you put us in the fire and he rescues us, so be it. And if you put us in the fire and he doesn't, so be it. Our hearts are with him, not you. Do you know the story? So they put them in the fire. And at some point, the king is called back because what they see is not three boys put in a fire. They see a fourth man walking around, the Bible says. And he doesn't look like the other three. It actually says in Daniel that he looks like the son of God. You know the good news about that? The end of that story, three boys walked out. The fire was so hot that it had burned the ropes off their hands. But not a hair of their head was singed. It's a miracle. Three went in, four were seen, three come out. You know what that means about the fire of life? That's where he is. He's still there. He's still in that fire. So then when you go through the fire, when your Uzziah dies, when it's all stripped away, he's still there. And you can have peace. Why don't you grab out your connect card? Let's take a couple steps together. I've been talking about the Prince of Peace, but it's possible you don't have a relationship with him. The Bible says that you're a sinner just like everybody else in this room. It's not a statement of um, arrogance, and it's certainly not a statement of too much piety. It's just true. The Bible also says that you and I cannot save ourselves, that we need a Savior. If you were sick, he would have sent a doctor. If you needed financial help, he would have sent a financial advisor or a banker. You were a sinner, so he sent a Savior. And because of the work he did on the cross and in the resurrection, you can have eternal life with him. And you can have peace with God, peace with each other, and peace with yourself. I'd ask you to take your pen if you're feeling stirred and check next step A and says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. In a minute, we're going to put those cards aside. We're going to bow our heads and pray. I'm going to give you a chance to do some business with God. God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm going to trust the work Jesus did on my behalf. I'm going to trust the cross and the resurrection as the only vehicle by which I can become your son or daughter. Next step B says, today I'm choosing to be baptized. We have a baptism coming up in a few days, and um, we want you to get baptized. If you have questions, want to get baptized, where we celebrate your new life with Christ, you just check the box. That's how you start the process. Next step C is a verse we quoted. I want you to memorize it. The Bible says if you'll hide the word of God in your heart, it'll help you not to sin. I, I think it'll bring you peace. The, the word of God becomes a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Ephesians chapter 2, here's what it says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for Christ himself is our peace. And the next time you feel yourself ramping up, remind yourself, it's about Jesus. I need more Jesus. Next step B is grow number four. We call it revealing your mission. This is 
the fourth of four classes, experiences, conversation where we feed you. You come in, you learn some stuff. This particular one is happening on July 21st. We have lunch and child care for you. We want to invest in you for a couple of hours, feed you so that you can discover some of how God has wired you to have a mission in life. You're not here to just exist. That's where we talk about that. It's a fun, engaging experience. Go ahead and check the box and we'll connect with you. And then on Next Step E, we're having one of our local serves. The first Saturday of every month, teams from this church go out and serve. If you check this box, we'll tell you about it. You get up at 10 o'clock, you meet if you're able to, and we help you serve. If you're not able to make the third, go ahead and check the box, and you'll get on the list so that every month you'll get the updates of what's happening, all right? Once you set that aside, if you call this church home, I want to give you a chance to give um, in the offering today to help make the ministries happen. And I want to share with you just a, a, a brief um, text I got or email I got this week. The email says this. It says, uh, Pastor Ben, you did it again. Sunday morning, my joy got back. We talked about joy last week. My joy got a big kick. I didn't want to walk into church without joy, but I did. Well, I didn't walk out of church without joy. Wow. And he even flew home to deliver the message of joy just for me. God is so good. That doesn't mean anything to you, does it? Of course not. It's all about me and the job I did last week and how God used me. It's awesome. But what, what you may not know is the lady that wrote this to me was a lady by the name of Phyllis Walters. She's become a friend of mine over the last several months in this church. She reminds me of my mom. Uh, she prays for me. I love to have Phyllis pray for me. She puts her hands on me and just declares scripture over me and prays for me. She's a one, wonderful lady of God. On um, Friday night, um, Phyllis went to bed, and on Saturday morning, she didn't wake up. She passed away and went home to be with Jesus. And um, she serves on our prayer team. She was here just last week. And I was just as sad as can be. You know, here I am enjoying my Saturday, and all of a sudden, I'm in a thing. And I had some conflicting thoughts. One is, I'm just so sad. Just so sad. But the other thing I thought is, if there's ever a person who's experiencing joy, it's Phyllis. But you know what made Phyllis happy? It was when she moved to Westchester, she looked for a church family. She loved her church family back in Fort Wayne. She looked for a church family, and she found this one, and she and I connected, and a lot of you connected with her. And every week almost, she would let me know about how somebody in this church had encouraged her or who she's praying for or what was going on. And I just had this thought in the middle of my sadness. I'm just thrilled to be a part of a church that welcomes people. Here was a 79-year-old lady a lot of churches they'd walk into, she wouldn't have been cool. She wouldn't have been hip. She, she wouldn't have fit the culture. But she came here and she was loved and adored and celebrated and part of family, but in a small group. I was just proud of my church. So her daughter calls us and says she loved the church. She loved you guys. So I know it's a bit of sad news. Those of you that knew her, those of you that didn't, we lost, we lost a jewel. But the good news is, is that we have a church where family is real, where love really happens. And we're not perfect. We're just like every one of your families. You got, we got a few weird uncles, a couple aunts that you want to avoid, a couple cousins that are a little squirrely. That's all of us here. So, so, you know, but we're a good family. And I'm grateful that you make it happen. And some of you understand the power of giving a few dollars and pennies to make this church happen. Thank you. Tangibly, thank you. On behalf of Phyllis and her family, thank you. Let's pray about our next steps on our offering right now. Father, thank you for the joy of God 
that Phyllis is experiencing today. We lift up her family to you, all four of her children, her granddaughter Mia who goes here. God, be with them. Give them peace. Speak peace to their lives. God, I want to thank you for a life lived in front of you, the joy that flowed from Phyllis's heart, the blessing she was to us. And I want to thank you, God, that without a doubt, I know that she is in your presence, not because she was a good person, but because she was a saved daughter of the King. So, Father, today we bring to you our gifts. We bring to you next steps, our efforts. But, God, we can't do anything without you. So would you take them, would you apply your power, by your grace, would you use them to bring good into our lives, good into this community, good into this world? Father, I lift up the men and women right now in this church that are saying, Jesus, save me, wash away my sins. I can't save myself, so I trust the work you did on the cross and in your resurrection to save me. I trust in that alone. We give this to you, we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus, the strong son of God, amen and amen.